Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There's no, quote, wrong way to do morning pages. So as you're writing them, your perfectionist is going to rear its head and say, June, you're being boring. (laughs) Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hi, June. So whose voice did we just hear at the beginning of the episode? So that was Julia Cameron, the author of The Artist's Way, a book that more than 25 years ago introduced the concept of morning pages. And I wanted to speak with her now because she has a new book out. It's called Seeking Wisdom, A Spiritual Path to Creative Connection. Wow. Um, So I I feel like we're all familiar with the idea of morning pages, but I definitely didn't know that Julia Cameron was the person responsible for them until this interview, actually. So I'm curious when you first discovered her. I think that like a lot of bookish people, whenever I go into someone's house or, you know, even see bits of their homes on Zoom calls, my eyes immediately lock onto their bookshelves. And at a certain point, I realized that The Artist's Way was probably the book that most of my friends and acquaintances had in common. Wow. And as you say, like morning pages are everywhere. And I'm always struck by how many different kinds of people use them. You know, sincere people, cynical people, aspiring writers, very successful writers, religious people, hardline atheists. That's always really fascinated me, how broad her appeal is. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, she seems like a pretty perfect guest for this show. <laughs> so I'm very, yeah. very excited to hear this interview, but also very interested to know what you guys talked about for this week's Slate Plus segment. Wow. Well, this week's Slate Plus exclusive content is extra special. I learned that Julia writes a poem for every one of her books. And so first, Slate Plus members will hear her read the poem that was the foundation for The Artist's Way. And then she also shared the poem for her latest book, Finding Wisdom. That's so lovely. So listeners, if you haven't already, why not join Slate Plus? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like The Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's hear June's conversation with Julia Cameron. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. 
Ramps business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramps software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. So, Julia Cameron, you are known for your book, The Artist's Way. Tell me about your new book, Seeking Wisdom, and how it's different from The Artist's Way. Well, I think The Artist's Way lays out some basic tools to improve your creativity. And among those tools are morning pages, artist dates, walks. Then a tool that I introduce and briefly leave, which is asking for guidance. Uh, And what happened for me was that I had been writing for 55 years, and I got to a place where I thought, well, what should I write next? Mm. So I asked for guidance about it, and I was told, you're going to write about prayer. And I found myself thinking, well, for 30 years I've been doing guided writing, Uh, And it's a form of prayer, uh, and I've never really talked at depth about what it would do to enhance people's creativity. Mm. So I thought, okay, I'll explain my story of how I came to pray, which was a sobriety story. Mm. So the book Seeking Wisdom opens with me at an alcoholic bottom. I was told if I wanted to stay sober, I had to pray. And I said, you don't understand. I've had 16 years of Catholic education, and that's long enough to know that I hate prayer. Uh, And they said, well, you must believe in something. (laughs) And I said, well... I believe in a line from the poet Dylan Thomas, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. Right. Uh, And I think I could pray to that creative energy uh, and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what I began to do. You've mentioned so many things already, and I'm very aware that right at the beginning of your book, In the first few pages, you get to a lot of really big topics. You talk about God and prayers. You talk about your personal experience as a recovering alcoholic. And then you get right in to the process, the things that this book will help people to do. Morning pages, artist dates. Were you aware of wanting to put that information right at the beginning? I ask because I think some other similar books they kind of keep the reader waiting for those big elements, and you really put them right at the beginning. 
Well, I think they belong right at the beginning. Uh, and I, I think if you're going to be writing a book about prayer, you should not mince words. Mm. Uh, you should say, well, I'm going to write about prayer. And if you hate the idea of prayer, perhaps you can entertain a new notion of prayer. Uh, and perhaps you need to look again uh, at what I would call your God concept. What were you brought up to believe in? Yeah. Do you believe in an authoritarian God, a stern God, an unforgiving God? Or do you have a loving, encouraging, supportive God? Uh, and that's what we're aiming for, one who is delighted to hear our pleas. There is so much about God in this book. Like It might be the, most, the word that appears most times. Again, I, I appreciate that you're not disguising that, you know, and you say at the beginning, if the word God is uncomfortable for you, do not let that be a block to greater support and connection. And I guess I'm asking this question for people kind of like me who are just a bit turned off by God talk. Does that mean that this book won't work for me or for people who are atheists or agnostics? I think people don't need to call it God. Yeah. They are connecting with a higher energy force, uh, and they can call it the source, the universe, spirit, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that some kind of spiritual practice is necessary for creativity for all or is it simply for the kind of practice that you're laying out in your in your work? I wouldn't say it's necessary for all, mm -hmm. but I would say it's helpful mm. for all. Mm. I feel like uh, I want to say to you, don't let any notions of established religion mm. get in the way of your personal experience. Mm. Uh, and what I find uh, is that people come back to me and they'll say, you know, Julia, I really didn't believe in God. Uh, and you had me doing morning pages and artist dates uh, and taking walks uh, and writing for guidance. Uh, and I found myself thinking, oh, I'm contacting something, mm. and I don't think you need to call it God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I call it God because that's a shorthand that works for me. Yeah. Okay, so you, you've talked about morning pages. You are so known for them. You, this is a concept that has been so widely embraced. Millions of people around the world begin their day with something that you came up with. First, a very basic question. What are morning pages? Aha. I'm, see, I'm glad you're plunging directly into the deep <laughs> waters. So morning pages are three pages of longhand, handwritten pages, eight and a half by 11, 
so one side, one side, one side, uh, and you do them first thing upon awakening um, before your defenses are in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are sort of a report on your position. You're saying, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. <laughs> this is what I want more of. This is what I want less of. Uh, and it, I think it helps if you think of yourself as being in a little life raft in the middle of the ocean, uh, and you're, you're sending out your position so the big boat can come and rescue you. Uh, so I think it's important that the pages are done by hand uh, because if we write on computer, we can go whipping past an important point. And if we write by hand, which many of us resent (laughs) uh, because it's slower, it gives us a a more authentic life. Hmm. It gives us a more handmade life. Uh, And you don't show your pages to anyone, and that includes your significant others who may beg you for a glimpse. Yeah, what are you doing? It's so mysterious. And actually, you say, it's an assignment, uh, and I'm not allowed to show it to you, so leave me be. But you're so specific. Eight and a half by 11. One side, one side, one side. Like, how have you been able to be so specific? How, How did that come to you, that that's what it needed to be? Well, what I found was that if people sometimes wanted to write on miniature pages. I'll write three pages on my little journal. Mm -hmm. But what I found was that when people wrote on little pages, they tended to miniaturize their thoughts. Wow. And they needed enough room to expand and explore their thoughts. Uh, And what I found was that maybe the first page and a half was pretty easy, Uh, and the second page and a half was digging deeper. Mm. But I don't want people doing more than three pages because what happens is that then they become a narcissist. (laughs) So the pages are aimed at moving people into action. And one of the things that always, honestly for me, kind of, maybe prevents me from getting into it is you say you're not this is not an attempt to write well this is not an attempt to you know be a great writer it's about getting things down doesn't that mean that like squiggles would work why why doesn't quality matter well when you say squiggles you're talking about nonsense yeah yeah when you write morning pages you're talking about concepts and uh, they may feel scattered. They may feel as if you have ADD. <laughs> you write, I forgot to talk to my sister yesterday. I didn't like how Fred talked to me in the meeting. I forgot to buy kitty litter. <laughs> and it sounds like uh, if you're having trouble with letting it flow, uh, that you may be a perfectionist. Yeah. For writing, yes. And how do you let go of that? Well, one of the things that happens 
is that there's no, quote, wrong way to do morning pages. So as you're writing them, your perfectionist is going to rear its head and say, June, you're being boring. <laughs> exactly. And what you will say to your perfectionist, because there's no wrong way to do pages, is thank you for sharing. Uh, and what happens is that you're training your critic or your perfectionist to allow you to move past it onto the page. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a portable skill. Uh, and uh, when you turn to your more serious writing later in the day, you'll find yourself tuning out the voice of the critic. Mm. It's as if you've miniaturized it, uh, and uh, it goes from being a big scary ogre to being a wee peeping cartoon character uh, that's committed to negativity. Uh, and you begin to almost laugh in the face of perfectionism. So, Julia, another part of the, the rules, if you like, of morning pages are that you should do them every single day. Why is that important? Well, you're training yourself uh, that you are able to write under any circumstance. So you no longer are asking, am I in the mood to write? And we find that mood uh, is seductive uh, and mood is punitive. Uh, if we keep waiting to be in the right mood when I, quote, feel inspired, we will find ourselves blocking ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're trained to write every day, to just drop down the well and write, that becomes a portable skill. So when you turn to your writing at a, a little later date, uh, you find yourself able to tap directly into the flow. Interesting. So training, almost like an athlete would train to run a marathon, that training in that sense. Yes. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Julia Cameron. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Julia Cameron. Can you talk about when you're writing, because you've written 40 books, more than 40 books at this point. What's different for you between sitting down to write morning pages and sitting down to write a chapter of a book? Is it a matter of setting your intention differently? What's different? Well, I usually ask for guidance, uh, which is the fourth tool that is explored at great length in Seeking Wisdom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... uh, I say, what should I write about next? And then I listen. Mm. I recently wrote a play, uh, and I didn't know how to begin it. Mm. Uh, And I asked for guidance, and they said, birds. And I said, birds. (laughs) So I started the pages, and I wrote, Birds, aren't they lovely? And that was the beginning of the play. So that became a line of dialogue? Yes. How do you learn to trust that voice or those voices? Mightn't that just be that critic? Mightn't that be a part of you that, or I guess I'm asking how you learn to trust the voices or the voice or whatever comes through? You learn to trust through practice. You learn to trust despite skepticism. Mm. Uh, you, you learn to say, well, if this is just my imagination, more power to it. My imagination is more powerful, more potent, more encouraging, more helpful than I had ever realized. So it doesn't really matter uh, how you conceptualize the source of the guidance. Mm. Uh, I got to a point where I thought, I'm asking for guidance. I need to know who I'm talking to. Uh, And then I listened, uh, and the boy said, Julia, we prefer to remain anonymous. (laughs) Yeah. Let me me go back to to another part of your recipe for creative unblocking, the artist date. Actually, that's one that I, you know, you return to it because in the book, uh, Seeking Wisdom, you have these regular check-ins as you, as every time you, you introduce a new concept at the end of the chapter, there's a kind of check-in. How are you doing on this? How are you doing on that? And for me, the artist date was kind of hard to, to get a grip on because I couldn't quite tell how it's different from just kind of blocking off a chunk of time 
to sit and write or compose or whatever your creative outlet is? Well, an artist's date is a once a week solo expedition to do something that enchants or interests you. So what you're doing is you're saying, well, there are two parts to it. Artist, that's me, and date, what would I enjoy? You're sort of <laughs> romancing yourself. You're wooing yourself. I love that. So it's not for sitting down and writing more. It's not for sitting down and composing more. It's for letting go. Mm. Is it a reward? Well, what we find when we're doing creative work uh, is that we're fishing from an inner well. Ooh. We're looking for images, concepts, and ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what happens is people will say, Julia, I was doing so well, and then it dried up. And I will say to them, it sounds to me as if you have overfished your inner well. And what artist states do is they consciously replenish the inner well. Uh, and it's not linear. You don't uh, have to take an artist state that relates to your project. You have to take an artist state that relates to your sense of glee. Huh. So it's not a research trip. It's, some, it's fun. And people, when I'm teaching, uh, if I say, I have a tool for you, it's a nightmare. You have to wake up 45 minutes early uh, and put your thoughts to the page, and it's hard work. Mm. People will say, work. <laughs> I get it. Right. Right. I know how to work. Yeah. But then if I say, now, once a week, I want you to take yourself out all by yourself and do something festive. I, in other words, I, I'm assigning you a period of play. And they'll be skeptical. They cross their arms. They tilt their head. And they say, play. I don't see what play has to do with working on our creativity. Uh, and I will say to them, well, we have an expression, the play of ideas. And we don't realize that it's literally a prescription. Play, and you will have ideas. Most of your examples are about writing. Are your techniques and your books just for people who want to be writers, or do they work for all kinds of creative expression? They work for all kinds of creative expression. Yes, I, I think, unfortunately, writers sometimes want to write well. <laughs> uh, and um, writers are frustrated when I say, you're not to write well, you're simply to write. Uh, and um, I think the notion that we have contact with what you 
you know, you might want to call it the muse mm, mm, mm-hmm. with a, a source of guidance that may say to you, you think you want to write, I think you should paint. When I go out to teach, people will bring me trinkets. Uh, you know, people will say, I used your tools, and now I make jewelry. Huh. I used your tools, and I have a source of distribution now for my painted images. So I think the tools can be used on any and all arenas. So Seeking Wisdom is also very much a book about friends and friendship, about getting wisdom and help and support from friends. Do you have any advice for how people can find creative friends, that is, friends who will support them in their creative work and who they can support in theirs? I would ask for guidance. (laughs) I would say, what about my friend Gerard? And then I would listen. What about my friend Scotty? I, I have a sense that we need to identify carefully the people who can help us. Uh, And I think too often we pick our critical friends and we're waiting for negative advice. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that we can say, who is positive? I'm conscious that, or rather you even say that, that when you... When you are seeking guidance, it's a kind of a humble act. It's a you know you are humbling yourself and you're 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 making yourself small uh, in the sense that you're you're the little force and you're asking a greater force for for help. And I often think of writing or being creative as being bold. You know, it's they're kind of the, to me those two sensations of of being humble and being bold are are, are kind of intention. Do you see them that way, or, or do you see things a different way? Well, if, you're, if I'm understanding your question, it is, how can I be bold when I'm being humble? Yes, I suppose it is, yes. This is where I want people to keep going back to guidance huh. uh, and asking, who can I trust? How can I be larger? Uh, and I, I think... Uh, it's important to say that morning pages are a tool mm. that encourages us to expand. Uh, and uh, mm. they'll bring up a risk and we'll think, I can't do that. Uh, and then they'll bring up the risk again a week later and you'll think, I don't think I can do that. And then they'll bring up a risk a third time and you'll say, oh, <laughs> All right, I'll try. Uh, And in the trying, we expand. I get you. Okay, now I understand. This is your 40th book, or maybe you said around 40. How was writing your 40th book 
different from writing your first or your fifth? Does it get easier? I think I've learned to trust the flow. I recently wrote a book, which won't be out for another year, called Write for Life. Uh, And it talks about the process of learning to trust your first thought. I think for many people, they don't trust their first thought. They cross it out and they try and be more brilliant. Mm. Uh, And I I think trying to be brilliant is a potent form of block. And uh, what I have found is if I try to be of service, I may accidentally be brilliant. (laughs) My last question for you, I hope it's not too silly, but, you know, we mentioned earlier that the the morning pages, you want to be written in longhand. You you have a certain size book that, that is the target. Do you have a particular pen or a particular set of writing instruments or a particular uh, book or do you just use, you know, whatever is at hand? I use an eight and a half by 11 page mm-hmm. and I write with a Uniball 207 pen. Oh my goodness. It comes in two forms. One is one where you click and it protrudes mm-hmm. and the other one is one where you pull off the little cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find the Uniball 207s to be very fast writing pens. So I recommend them. <laughs> so the gel ink keeps up with your thoughts. It's a, it's a very good pen. Yes. Julia, thank you so much. It was such an honor to speak with you. Thank you for your books, which obviously have have been so influential for so many people. Thank you so much for being on Working. You're welcome. Thank you. June, your conversation with Julia is so fascinating, and there's so much to dig into there. Um, First off, Julia's idea of the relationship between prayer and creativity is so interesting because I think there are kind of two extremes to how we usually perceive prayer or the place of religion in art. Either we don't really think about it at all or we attribute things to it like divine inspiration or something like that. Um, Have you ever thought of the two as connected before? Oh, man, I have to say I went on like a really extensive journey with the spiritual dimensions of this new book. Mm -hmm. Like when people start talking about prayer or God, part of me shuts down. And it's not because I'm hostile to religion or faith. I actually consider myself agnostic rather than atheist, for example. But as she kind of gestured to in the interview, I'm pretty sure it's that I've been turned off by the kind of weaponization of religion in this country Mm -hmm. or by religious groups that often feel hateful or hostile. So, you know, I I just have to acknowledge that. But when Mm -hmm. I consider the question using different words like inspiration or aha moment or even our old friend talent, Mm -hmm. I'm much more (laughs) sympathetic to that concept that, you know, forces outside us 
are at work that are at least partially responsible for providing us with insights or ideas. So I had that first visceral response, but after a while, I actually, you know, I was pretty won over. Yeah, I was really fascinated by your conversation in part because I feel like a lot of us have that kind of relationship to religion when it comes to creativity. And she's so frank about religion and spirituality in relation to the creative process as she um, sees it. Uh, You ask her if she thinks if some kind of spiritual practice is necessary for creativity. And I want to turn the question around on you. Is there anything that you think is absolutely necessary to creativity? (laughs) Maybe this will seem weird, but I think (laughs) humility, you know, which isn't Mm -hmm. to say that I don't think arrogant people can be successful in creative endeavors. I suspect we both have worked with writers or other (laughs) artists who are really pretty confident you know they've got no humility whatever when it comes Mm -hmm. to how great they are at their jobs and I think that's totally reasonable actually because you need a certain amount of self-belief to make your living from making stuff up Mm -hmm. but I do think that you have to respect the idea that the ability to write or paint or compose or sing or whatever is a gift you know you have to work hard But there's also an ineffable, inexplicable, undefinable element that demands respect and maybe humility. I totally agree. And I also think about it in a broader context where you mentioned like both of us have definitely come across people that we would maybe describe as arrogant. Mm. And that will often be kind of a stumbling block. Like it's not to say that people who behave in a sort of nasty way won't get far, but it will, like people will talk about that, right? Like your reputation will form around that. It's better to be empathetic and kind towards other people when you're trying to make headway in any field. Yeah. To sort of return uh, to your interview with Julia Cameron, I actually didn't realize until she kind of laid out the rules in your conversation that morning pages are actually supposed to be longhand. I'm sure you've talked about this before, but for my sake, I'm curious <laughs> if you do morning pages and if you do, if you do them longhand and as she also requires, not show them to anybody. Oh, I don't do morning pages, at least mm-hmm. not currently. And right now, that's because my biggest issue is a lack of time mm-hmm. rather than a feeling of creative block, which these morning pages are kind of designed to counter. Mm-hmm. So I would rather use the 45 minutes or so first thing in the morning to do some kind of work on my book or, you know, whatever project I'm working Mm -hmm. on. However, while I don't do morning pages, I often journal to work out specific issues, you know, like if a person or a situation or something is bothering me and it's just kind of eating away at me, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of, what do you call that? Um intrusive thoughts, <laughs> then I, I find that writing about them is a really effective way of undoing like that knot of dissatisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> and I always prefer to do it. I always prefer any kind of writing longhand. So that's mostly to kind of take advantage of the the notebooks and the pens that I own, uh, mm-hmm. taking advantage of any excuse to use them. But so so it's kind of, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to it, but I don't actually practice it myself. What about you? I don't do morning pages. I think 
part, she sort of talks about this where people will sometimes be like, oh, I don't want to do them because it feels like homework. And that is sometimes yeah. how it feels to me. Um, but also maybe sort of a time thing. But I don't know if that's maybe an excuse I'm making up because there <laughs> are definitely days where I just spend an hour just staring at my screen being like, I don't know what to write. Um, so, I mean, maybe I should do morning pages. Um, I also thought it was so funny that she, what, what she was saying, what Julia Cameron was saying about not going beyond three pages for morning pages, that she found that going longer would turn people into narcissists. And then also on a sort of similar point that if they tried to do it in smaller notebooks, that it would make them make their thoughts smaller as well. Yeah. I do feel like sometimes that kind of physical shift in terms of like what you are writing on literally will cause a shift in your thought process. For instance, like I would always write my interview questions down longhand um, because I thought that would make me remember them better or make me have a better sense of the interview flow before I would go in and do one. Have you ever had a similar experience or do you have a similar thing where you're like this object or this physical ritual will somehow improve my writing or make it do something else? I've definitely done that. I agree that like writing things down longhand does make it easier to remember them. That also Mm -hmm. is true when you're learning a language, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I also think that I agree, too, that it's it's also good to kind of change things up. I like for all my love of analog writing tools the majority of my creative work is done digitally. Mm -hmm. I really love all the apps and the software and all that. But when I get stuck, the first thing that I do is pull out a physical notebook and a pen. And if that doesn't clear the blockage, I'll whip out a different notebook and a different pen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if it's novelty that I think kind of shifts something if you're stuck or if it is this mythical, mystical, and yet also I think scientifically established thing that actually writing does confer benefits but yeah the act of doing that the act of picking up pen and paper it really helps me and and it has done for a long time as a brief aside I want to say I can't believe it's only in like the last two episodes of working that I've recorded with you that I've really cottoned on to the fact that you are a huge nerd for like stationery (laughs) like (laughs) I just didn't know this about you despite having known you for a while but it's such a charming point about you I'm really obsessed with it (laughs) (laughs) Um, So one of the things, one of the other things that you talk about with Julia is the idea of sort of forcing yourself to get some words out onto the page. And that sometimes the idea of having to be in the mood to write is, in fact, in itself kind of a bit of a block. Sometimes the words just don't come or you just don't want to be working, which (laughs) I know that I have experienced quite a lot. Um, I find it very hard to get around that. Um, What about you? Yeah, that really struck me too. It made me think of the slogan of Field Notes, which is one of my favorite stationary brands, which is, (laughs) I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. And maybe Mm. that's not quite what that means, but Mm -hmm. I, I just think that I don't really want to say if you can make yourself do something every morning, you're proving that you can do it every time because I don't like that idea of forcing yourself to be creative. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I can see that building like a streak of daily writing could build confidence. And, you know, that's really key. You have to believe that you're capable of creating something out of the void before you can do it. Mm -hmm. Kind of on the opposite side of the coin, the idea of overfishing your inner well was such a funny, funny phrase to come out of your conversation. But I also think really accurate to the feeling of burnout in general. 
the tougher thing is figuring out how to fix that feeling or how to yeah. get over it. Yeah. I, you, Julia talks a little bit about giving yourself a play period, like setting aside time to just go do something else to try to replenish. But And this is something that we've talked about in previous episodes. I often feel guilty taking that time, especially if I'm not done with a project. I always feel like I should be working. And especially these days, it just gets harder and harder to take the time off, even though it's becoming more and more necessary. Yes. How do you go about putting gas back in the tank? How do you feel about that as a concept? I, I, no, I mean, it's a beautiful concept and a, a fantastic image. And mm-hmm. I'm slightly embarrassed by the things that I do, even though, <laughs> just because I feel like they're childlike, but like play is childlike. That's the best kind of play, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it is like stuff that kids do, drawing, visual journaling. Um, there's this style of journaling that I believe came out of K-pop fandom that I'm mm-hmm. really drawn to and like making books and, and things like that. And I find that it's really great for replenishing. You know, it it doesn't, I can't say that it is me turning off my brain exactly, right. but it does put it on a different track. It it just kind of shakes me up a little bit. Um, yeah. And, Wait, and what s- is the K-pop journaling style? Oh my God. So YouTube, you can just, you can Fair. just, uh, yeah, but no, but it's amazing. It's like, it's very precise and like, so, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's it's beautiful stationery because, of course, of course, Korean stationery, uh, like rivaling Japanese stationery right now. Uh, lots of little pieces of paper, lots of tiny little pieces of washi tape and mm-hmm. a lot of layering and like writing something, then covering it with like four layers of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just... I love the aesthetic and I actually love that concept of writing something, covering it up, writing something else, covering that up and just like having Hmm. these layers. It's very, it's it's both attractive, but also I think pretty effective. That's so interesting. That's one more thing for me to go look up and which is quite (laughs) exciting for me. I like work. I like this podcast's homework. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I also want to ask about one of the things that you guys come to later in your conversation, which is the idea of asking for guidance. It's often something that's difficult to do in part, I think, because you don't want to admit that you're lost. And then also because you sort of have to explain what you're working on, which can be embarrassing in its own right. Um, Do you find it easy? Do you often do it? And if so, how does that fit into your creative process? No, I I mean, I do it, but only in almost like a cartoonish way, you know, like, (laughs) When I'm I'm just so blocked and I'm mad <laughs> and I'm just like, why did I do this? Why did I put myself in this situation? Yeah. Who are you? You know, just like you're just mad at the world and mad at yourself. <laughs> and it's almost like this, you know, you can see the kind of cliche cartoon of a person pulling out their hair and just like yeah. with this big why oh why. And <laughs> I would like to get better at seeking guidance and getting help because I put it off until I'm mad and that is not effective. <laughs> and I, then I've got to get over myself before I can like move on. Uh, so yeah, that, I, that's something I need to work on. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, me too. I I see that in the script you have, you have a retort question is, do you have any tips for, for asking for guidance? And the answer is I don't because I also <laughs> act in the way that you do where I'm like, I will figure it out by myself. And then at exactly. the end of the road, I'm just screaming into the ether. Exactly. <laughs> Well, if any working listeners have tips, please send them in because Mm. obviously we need them. 
is it for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and then you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Culture Gabfest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you so much to Julia Cameron and to our fabulous producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Karen's conversation with artist, illustrator, and graphic designer, Dana Kim, author of The Grandmaster's Daughter. Until then, get back to work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.